Welcome to another episode from Quarantine of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasedarada.com. Let's start tonight by talking about the sense of touch. Researchers at the École Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, or EPFL, have mapped specific neurons that help activate sensory processing in nearby nerve cells. This finding could give us insight into how the brain integrates signals required for tactile perception and learning. Using mice models, which is always a very important caveat to mention up front, uh, we've talked about the just say in mice uh, Twitter before, where uh, the idea, the fact that it's being used in mice is often buried. Um, and so neuroscientists have identified a type of neuron that helps trigger activity in the brain region associated with functions such as sensory perception and motor control. The findings could help us better understand not only how the brain translates tactile information, but also how it links information together, which is, of course, an important part of learning. Previous studies looked at a type of inhibitory inhibitory neuron called a vascoactive intestinal peptide, or VIP, interneuron, suspected to play a role in forming new connections between nerve cells and the integration of sensory and motor skills. The new study focuses focused on measuring the membrane potential, the most fundamental electrical feature of the brain cells in a living brain, according to Professor Carl Peterson at the EPFL School of Life Sciences. The test involved mice and their sensory organ, the whisker. Mice use whiskers the way we might use our hands in the dark. In one experimental setup, Peterson and his team measured the activity of neurons in the somatosensory barrel cortex, a region of the brain involved in processing whisker sensation, as mice moved their whiskers back and forth in a process called whisking. In another experimental setup, they measured the activity of the neurons as the mice received light touches to their whiskers. In the absence of the main excitatory transmitter glutamate, Both whisking and whisker simulation triggered the VIP neurons to activate, but not other types of neurons in the barrel cortex. The activation of VIP neurons was dependent on increased levels of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. To test if acetylcholine indeed activates VIP neurons, the team used mice engineered to have light-sensitive proteins in brain cells that mainly use acetylcholine as a messenger molecule. So basically, when they're activated, they send out acetylcholine, which is in turn going to then activate those VIP neurons. 
And so they used light to stimulate those neurons to release acetylcholine messages, and they measured the activity of the other cells in the barrel cortex. They found that acetylcholine did indeed trigger a go signal, which initiated action in the VIP neurons and a stop signal in another type of neuron called somatostatin. Somatostatin expressing neurons. SST neurons typically inhibit the portions of excitatory nerve cells located in the outer layer of the somatosensory cortex. They further found that the acetylcholine released during the whisking excited VIP neurons, which leads to dampened activity of SST neurons, which in turn helps drive activity of excitatory cortical nerve cells, which in turn stimulates sensory process processing through disinhibition, disinhibition, according to the study published in the journal Neuron. Many of the long-range connections between different brain regions centers on the outermost layer of the cortex. The, ac the activation of excitatory neurons through disinhibition of the outer layer most likely favors the ability to integrate different sensory signals, allowing the mouse's brain to sort through the various stimuli and could drive the formation of new connections between neurons, a process that underlies learning in the structure of the brain. Now, noting that the fact, the fact that the study was done in mice, Peterson explained that when scientists have looked in the human brain, the same cell types and the same mechanisms have come up. And so that's, of course, why we use mice um, in a lot of these studies, because the mice actually are very helpful in being a sort of uh, model, literally a model of how um, our brains are often set up, how our system will um, react to things, because even though it's important to say in mice, especially with medical um innovations and with drugs and things like that, there is a lot to be said for using mice models. And so especially in something like this, where you have a structure in a brain that is basically um, set up the same way in most mammalians, it's not so hard to uh, map things from the mice to uh, humans. And in fact, the finding might help us better understand the symptoms of schizophrenia. People with the disorder have mutations in receptors that respond to acetylcholine and also have trouble selecting and integrating sensory information. So this particular um, study really shows that it might be that because they have trouble with acetylcholine and because the receptors that respond to sensory information need acet acetylcholine. It seems a pretty straightforward uh, connection between why that would be a problem in people with schizophrenia. And so the next step for the team is to study whether signals mediated by acetylcholine could improve learning in mice. We can increase acetylcholine and see if we can enhance learning or turn the signals off and see if that prevents learning, Peterson said. 
And so in future, the team also hopes to learn about how acetylcholine reaches receptors on the surface of VIP neurons and what makes the neurons that in turn release acetylcholine become active and release the neurotransmitter, which is then uptaken by the VIP neurons. This process is actually a um, mystery. And so even though we now know kind of the chemistry of what's going on, we don't yet know that first step wherein the uh, body triggers the brain to start um, producing that acetylcholine. Those particular neuronal paths aren't yet mapped. And so it's really um, important that eventually we be able to figure that out because, for instance, it could help us in treating things like schizophrenia. If you could figure out the entire sequence, you might be able to find um, places where drugs or something else could help to um, make that process work more efficiently and more in a normal sense so that people would be able to have a better um sensory perception. So hopefully that is going to continue to be explored. And um, I think it's really interesting to be able to find out these sorts of things and also to know that sometimes we don't know these sorts of things. Like the fact that we don't didn't know the neuronal paths that go into this sort of sensory perception. We think we know a lot about everything. Um, and sometimes it's funny, the things that we still don't understand. And of course, neuroscience is still, um, in a lot of ways, a very, very, very new science. Um, you know, ancient neuroscience was not actually uh, pretty much useful in any way. <laughs> um, you know, the ancients didn't really get what the brain was a lot of times. Um, they were much more um, concerned with the heart and other parts of the body. Um, and so they didn't really understand a lot about the brain. Um, and of course, as we move forward, you can tell, like, if you have your brain be hurt, if you get hit or something like that, you can have developmental issues after that. But the actual nitty gritty of understanding the neuronal connections and the chemistry and how neurotransmitters work and how um, neurons uh, increase their ganglion connections in order to form um, actual like memories and to form uh, pathways that are um, reinforced by your actual actions. All of that is really, really only within the last 50 years or so, um, really on the, um, micro scale. And so, you know, the brain is also the most complicated computer, quote unquote, um, that we know about. And so, uh, it's not really surprising that there's still a lot we don't know about it, but it is sometimes, uh, a little bit shocking to be like, wait, we don't understand how touch works in the brain. Um, which is not to say that we don't understand it at all. It's just some of these finer grained, um, interactions. Okay. So uh, now that we've talked about touch a lot, we're actually going to talk about uh, eyes and the sense of sight. 
And so there has been a long-standing question about how the vertebrate eye initially developed. And so a new study suggests that the answers lie with the uh, somewhat lowly and misunderstood hagfish. I mean, there's good reasons why they're lowly, um, <laughs> because uh, they do, uh, they are famous, of course, for producing a lot of slime. Um, and so they're not the greatest uh, of uh, species to be working with, but they are important because it turns out that this new study uh, by University of Alberta biologists suggests that hagfish eyes really are similar in important ways to the vertebrate eye. Hagfish eyes can help us understand the origin of human vision by expanding our understanding of the early steps in vertebrate eye evolution, explained lead author Emily Dong, who conducted the research during her graduate studies with Ted Allison, a professor in the Faculty of Science and member of the U of A's Neuroscience and Mental Health Institute. Our findings solidify the hagfish's place among vertebrates and open the door to further research to uncover the finer details of their visual system. And so hagfish had traditionally been thought to have eyes that were distinct from those of other vertebrates. Um, but the new research finds that their eyes contained many of the same features. And so while hagfish eyes lack a melanin-pigmented epithelium, a lens, and a retinal architecture of three cell layers, the photoreceptors, interneurons, and ganglion cells found in our eyes, for instance, they do share neurons connecting ganglion cells to light-sensitive photoreceptors, so they're just missing that interneuron uh, layer. The continued growth of the eye late into adulthood, uh, rather than what some other people had thought, which is that it might be regression from a more previously elaborate organ, uh, as in such animals that live in dark caves, for instance, and a hidden layer of support cells, which are key to photoreceptor function and prominent in other vertebrates. This is important because it broadens the picture of early vertebrate eye evolution, explains Dong. The fossil record can only provide us limited information because soft tissue like eyes do not preserve well. And so we look to living members of these early lineages, such as the hagfish. And so hagfish are a basal species along the line of vertebrate evolution, representing the line of vertebrates that existed before the evolution of the jaw or paired fins and limbs. So they represent an important study species to kind of get at the root of these, um, the origins of these features. The data shed light on the confusing and dimly lit evolutionary origins of the vertebrate eye, added Allison. So that is really interesting, and um, I'm glad that uh, they're getting a little bit of props for being uh, useful to science rather than just uh, being thought of as slimy and gross. I mean, they're also still slimy and gross, and um, I think there are some applications that people are looking at for their slime, 
um, obviously on the sort of more engineering and biomimicry side of the um, aisle, but yeah. Uh, so hopefully that will help them learn more about the development of the eye. And so while hagfish have pretty uh, simple eyes, on the other side of the eye development spectrum is fan favorite, the mantis shrimp. Mantis shrimp have eyes that can detect not only visible light, but also ultraviolet and polarized light, as we probably already know, but just in case. Mantis shrimp are the ideal model for the creation of new types of optical sensors, obviously. <laughs> Which is why researchers at North Carolina State University have turned to them for inspiration. The sensor they've created is small enough for smartphones, but is much more developed than current smartphone sensors, which are still subject to tiny alignment errors of different wavelengths of light in images they produce. The new sensor is capable of breaking down visible light wavelengths into narrower bands and can capture polarizing light according to the paper published recently in the journal Science Advances. So mantis shrimp have three pseudo-pupils stacked one on top of each other. They have tens of thousands of clusters of photoreceptor cells called omatidia, similar to the eyes of insects. Six rows of omatidia in the center of the eye, the midband, are able to detect either specific wavelengths or polarized light. They also move independently and can manage depth perception independently because 70% of each eye focuses on the same point in space. And so their eyes basically act kind of like a scanner almost, kind of scanning the uh, image in front of them the way that you would use a regular old scanner to image a picture. And so the new sensor the stomatopod-inspired multispectral and polarization-sensitive sensor, or SIMPOLE, features elements, six polarization-sensitive organic photovoltaics and four polymer retarder films, vertically stacked along a single optical axis, all on a single pixel, which can detect hyperspectral and polarization polarization lights simultaneously. Our work demonstrates that it is possible to create small, efficient center sensors that can simultaneously capture hyperspectral and polarimetric images, the NCSU co-author Brendan O'Connor noted. I think this opens the door to a new breed of organic electronic sensing technologies. And so stacking the proof of concept prototype against standard smartphone CCD cameras, they noted that the standard cameras use three spectral imaging sources for red, green, and blue light, while Simpole features four spectral channels and three polarization channels at the same time. Modeling suggests that this could be extended to up to 15 spectral channels simultaneously. Thoughts of artificial intelligence programs can make use of data-rich hyperspectral and polarimetric images. 
but the equipment necessary for capturing those images is currently somewhat bulky, said co-author Michael Kudinov, also of NCSU. Our work here makes smaller, more user-friendly devices possible, and that would allow us to better bring those AI capabilities to bear in fields from astronomy to biomedicine, which is pretty fantastic. Um, it sounds like it's a pretty big upgrade, and especially if the sensor can fit on a single pixel. Uh, yeah, that's that's going to be huge. Um, and so hopefully they'll be able to scale this up and really be able to create next generation um, light sensing uh, um, sensors. <laughs> And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And of course, that is just a long line of uh, using biomimicry to make things better because, you know, evolution has had a long time to figure things out. So sometimes it's easier just to steal from Mother Nature than it is to actually try and go out and solve these problems from scratch. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so uh speaking of animals with what we would consider weird eyes let's once again turn our attention to another fan favorite in these parts the octopus and so uh we are going to switch gears a little bit we're not actually going to talk about their eyes um but rather the question of whether or not they can dream a couple of years ago, a PBS documentary featured an octopus named Heidi, who seemed to be dreaming. Her arms twitched, her skin moved rapidly through different textures, and she flashed green and red. It made a lot of people assume that she was dreaming, but it's not necessarily a certainty, given how different the octopus's brain and neural system are from mammals. Now, it's a lot easier to suggest, for instance, that dogs and cats are dreaming when they twitch and vocalize while they sleep. But even with cats and dogs, we can't ask them whether or not they're actually dreaming and we can't see what they see. And so while they have brains largely mirroring, mirroring ours, even in other mammals, we can't tell exactly if or what they are dreaming. However, we do know some things about the brains of octopuses. They're smart, they can use tools, they're master problem solvers, they have amazing, amazing ca camouflage ca abilities, and they even respond in the same way to humans uh, when dosed with MDMA, um, which of course is, you know, one of those kind of questionable uh things that have been done to our friends, the octopuses, to dose them with MDMA. But um, it seems like it made them, um, you know, happy and friendly. So uh, luckily, it didn't cause a lot of problems for them. But again, it's hard to tell exactly whether or not they're dreaming or even sleeping. But this new paper suggests that octopuses do indeed have states that are closely analogous to non-REM and REM sleep states. Now, again, I just want to be very clear about this. We can't know for sure if they're actually dreaming, but we're getting closer to being 
to being able to identify whether or not they can. Sylvia Medeiros, the first author of the new paper and a PhD student enrolled in the neuroscience graduate program of the Federal University of Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil, investigated sleep in octopuses because it gives us a vantage point for this psychological and neurobiological comparison with vertebrates, since the octopus possesses several sophisticated cognitive features that are only seen in some vertebrate species, but with a very different brain architecture, she wrote. We've talked about it before, but octopuses have neural structures that are quite different from ours. Instead of a central brain, they have lobes, including a vertical lobe associated with long-term memory, as well as features which which mirror in some ways the mammalian hippocampus, an area linked to complex learning in humans. But the rest of their neurons, some two-thirds are distributed in their arms, allowing them to function independently from the central brain. And so, in order to determine what exactly is going on with the octopus, Medeiros and her colleagues recorded video in the lab of four octopus insularis, a species conveniently found off the coast of Brazil. Now, I mention that it's hard to really pin down what's going on in the brain itself. Well, that's because of the nature of the octopus's behavior and physiology. They're very curious and would want to investigate anything attached to them. Thus, it is very difficult to attach electrodes in order to record the signal directly from the brains, from their brains, said Medeiros. In order to make sure that octopuses, the octopuses were actually asleep and not awake and just sort of in a Uh, uh, semi-sentient state, the researchers exposed the cephalopods to visual and tactile stimulations during all stages of the test. For the visual stimuli, we used a computer screen with a video showing live crabs moving, which we initiated remotely, said Medeiros. For the vibratory stimuli, A rubber hammer was attached to the aquarium's upper corner and tied to a nylon wire, which passed to the experimenter's room through a window. This wire had four marks, so that pulling it up to one of these marks would set the hammer at multiple angles to hit the aquarium, to hit the aquarium wall with four different increasing intensities. And so, by observing that it took extra stimulation to evoke a response at some stages of the animal's behavior, this strongly indicated that the octopuses were indeed asleep. The video shows two distinct stages of sleep. The first stage, required, referred to as quiet sleep, featured the octopuses having contracted eyes and pale skin. This stage tended to last around seven minutes. This was followed by an active sleep state, which averaged just 40 seconds in length. It was during this period that the octopus's skin changed color and texture, their eyes moved, and their arms and bodies twitched. And the cycle repeated in intervals between 26 and 39 minutes. Now, both the two different sleep states and the periodicity of the pattern were surprising. It once again shows that they have states which are similar to those found in vertebrates. 
In this case, it most likely developed independently in each lineage with the similarities. But the similarities being probably a consequence of similar selective pressures related to the very taxing cognitive loads experienced by these separate groups of animals, said Medeiros. And again, despite confirming that the animals experience an analog of REM sleep, it sadly doesn't let us know that they're dreaming. Even if they were dreaming, it's unlikely that they experience complex symbolic plots like we do, she said. And given the very short duration, if they were dreaming, it should be more like small video clips or even GIFs, said Medeiros. And so in future, Medeiros and her colleagues hope to further investigate the sleep states to see if they serve the same physiological functions as in mammals, such as detoxification and cognitive processing. They also want to tackle the hard task of actually recording electrophysiological data of the sleep-wake cycle by finding a way to have the octopuses accept electrodes. Probably they're going to have to bribe them. <laughs> Realistically. Uh, they're going to have to probably train them to be rewarded by uh, leaving the electrodes alone. And so uh, researchers can add the octopus findings to the larger question of why animals need sleep. This is another thing that we're not quite sure about. How it affects the nervous system overall and how it ultimately relates to fitness. All right, we are going to take a short break and do some PSAs and some show promos. And then we will be back and we're going to stick with the ocean for a while. So do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org.
the Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and once again, you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to stick, like I said, with the ocean for a while, and we are now going to talk about the mysterious world of deep-sea Arctic sponges, and so most of these are glass sponges of various sorts. So you've probably heard the phrase extremophiles before. Organisms, usually bacteria, that thrive in extreme environments. Deep-sea sponges may not fit quite the bill of extremophiles, but they live in a pretty extreme environment nonetheless. They live at more than 4,900 feet, almost a mile below the surface of the ocean, in waters below the freezing point, And so uh, in deep water, it can be super cooled. And so it can dip below levels where the water would freeze, even with its salt content. They also uh, have no access to sunlight and an extremely scarce availability of food. Despite all of this, sponge grounds are important ecosystems on the deep seafloor and are often compared to coral reefs. They are oases for communities of animals in otherwise barren expanses of the deep sea floor. The deep sea in most places is barren and flat. Furu Mies, a marine geologist with the Royal Netherlands Institute for Sea Research and a co-author of a new JGR Oceans survey, said in a statement, And then, suddenly, we have these sponge grounds that form colorful, thriving communities. To which she added, It is intriguing how this system sustains itself in such a place. And so the study details a year-long investigation of a sponge ground located at the Schultz Bank of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge off the northwest coast of Norway, in the Norway Sea, uh, pretty much smack dab between the Greenland and Barents Seas. Apparently, this seamount and the hydrodynamic conditions create a beneficial system for the sponges, she said. And so in order to study the area, the team deployed a bottom lander, a bottom lander, a rig fitted with an array of sensors. 
The rig was active between July 21st, 2016 and July 27th, 2017, and gathered data such as temperature and water oxygen levels, the flow of current, and the amount of available food raining down from the surface. A special camera and rig captured over 700 hours of video, giving a long-term look at physical changes to the area. Data gathered at the summit showed that water flowing around the sponge ground is interacting with the seamount itself, producing turbulent mixing and high-speed movements locally. They also found that the water moving around the seamount is delivering food and nutrients from water layers above and below towards the sponge ground, according to the new paper. The team recorded a current clocking in at 2.3 feet per second, which for the seafloor is practically racing speeds. Only one event during the year brought a noticeable amount of food from the surface, the summer phytoplankton bloom. The researchers don't believe that this one event is able to bring enough food for the year and suspect that there are other forms of food, including bacteria and dissolved matter, that the sponges are actually feeding on. And so the researchers further suspect that the frigid waters actually allow the sponges to thrive in these harsh conditions by lowering their metabolic rate to such a degree that they can survive and even thrive in the resource-scarce environment. So one of the things we know is that the lower your temperature, the slower your metabolism, and the less that you need to consume um, because your metabolism is very slow. The one thing that does affect them is actually that swift current. The speeds that we witnessed might be close to the maximum they can endure, explained Ulrike Hans, the first author of the new study in an NIOZ statement. At the highest speed, we saw some sponges as well as, a t- as anemones being ripped from the seafloor. Other than that, when reviewing the footage of the area for signs of physical change, the researchers found very little. Everything looked almost the same, said Hans, as it's just so cold out there that no crazy things are going on. And so the researchers note that care should be given to protect these unique ecosystems, because of course there are threats to them, uh, from fishing and deep sea mining. And so um, they really need to be uh, taken into account and to be protected. Um, and so I think that's very true. Um, I've seen some of the footage of uh, deep sea rovers going over these fields of um, of corals, and they're just amazing. Um and or sponges, I should say, not corals. Um, and so these deep sea sponges, some of them are bright colors, bright pinks. A lot of them are bright pinks, um, but all sorts of colors. They form all sorts of different branching and um, funnel shaped and fan like, and just the the myriad forms of them are just completely amazing. And to couple that with the fact that they are in such a harsh environment with such little access to food and such cold temperatures, um, it's really amazing. And you see around these 
um, sponge oases, you do see a myriad of animals. So there'll be all sorts of shrimp and copepods and uh, squat lobsters and all sorts of things will be um, congregating in these oases. They really are oases. Um, and they're just, they're absolutely fascinating. Um, and so they definitely need to be preserved. All right. So we are going to move slightly now to talk about earth science, but technically we're staying under the ocean. And so we want to first talk about a new ocean mapping expedition, which is creating a map of the submerged quote unquote lost continent of Zealandia. And so this bit of continental crust broke off from the supercontinent Gondwana between 79 and 83 million years ago. The only parts of the landmass that remain above sea level are New Zealand and New Caledonia. And so it's not the only wayward piece of continental crust, but it is the largest by far at some 1.9 million square miles. To put that in perspective, it's six times larger than Madagascar, the next largest chunk of sort of rogue continental crust. Zealandia, or Te Riu Amaui in Maori, was designated as a continent in 2017, and since then, researchers have been working on creating a map of the area. Unfortunately, this is hampered by the fact that it's 94% underwater. But Durya Guerer, an earth scientist at the University of Queensland in Australia, and her colleagues have gathered new data on the northwest edge of Zealandia, located off the Queensland's coast in the Coral Sea Marine Park. The survey took 28 days aboard the vessel Falcor, which is a great name for a boat, for a uh, ship, I should say and mapped 14,285 square miles of continental crust. Our expedition collected seafloor topographic and magnetic data to gain a better understanding of how the narrow connection between the Tasman and Coral Seas in the Cato Trough region, the narrow corridor between Australia and Zealandia, was formed, Gurr said in, it, in a statement. Now, the area between the Australia Plate and the Zealandia Plate is likely very complicated, Gurr explained. There are most likely several other chunks or microcontinents submerged in the area, all of which broke up from Gondwana during the process of Australia breaking free. And so the Australia Plate moved away and there was a lot of uh, collateral damage around the edges. The continental crust that these fragments are made of is less dense and thicker than the surrounding seafloor. And so this work is actually part of the Seabed 2030 collaboration, which hopes to map the ocean floor by 2030. The team also collected information about the intensity of the magnetic field across the area. Oceanic crust and continental crust have different mineral concentrations, which give them different magnetic signatures that will help inform the mapping. The seafloor is full of clues for understanding the complex ge geologic history of both the Australian and Zealandian continental plates, Gurr said. So that's very cool. Um, 
that we have a uh, newly designated continent um, and also that we are able to start mapping it in a really um, complete way. And so, again, we've talked about this before, but, um, you know, we really do want this Seafloor 2030 project to succeed because um, Noah has pointed out on several occasions, and I suppose it's gotten a little bit better since then, but uh, since they originally said it, that only about 10 to 11 percent of the world's uh, ocean floor has been uh, surveyed using modern uh, sonar techniques. And so there's still a lot to go um, before we really are able to know exactly everything that's down there. And so every time we learn a little more, it's very exciting. Okay, so we just talked about continental crust. So now we're going to sort of switch and talk about uh, a component of seafloor crust. And so it turns out that researchers have discovered a new kind of basalt. Drilling nearly a mile into the Pacific seafloor, an international team of researchers extracted a variety of basalt that is previously unknown and is chemically and mineralogically different from known varieties of the volcanic rock. The sample came from a 49 million year old outcrop of stone formed just a couple of million years after the Ring of Fire the half-moon of volcanic activity that follows the Pacific Rim, and where pretty much the majority of volcanoes are. <laughs> um, there are volcanoes, obviously, in other places. Um, it's not, it's probably not statistically the place where the most volcanoes are, but it's certainly a place where you think of, when you think of the Ring of Fire, you think volcano immediately. And so, after its ignition, the area featured superheated conditions that led to the formation of a unique type of stone. The samples came from nearly five miles below the ocean surface and are described in a new paper from Nature Communications. The rocks suggest that the area was hotter and more expansive than previously thought. The rocks that we've recovered are distinctly different to rocks of this type that we already know about, said co-author Ivan Savov, a geochemist and volcanologist at the University of Leeds, in a press release. In fact, they may be as different to Earth's known ocean floor basalts as Earth's basalts are to the moon's basalts. And so basalts, basalts are igneous volcanic rocks formed by cooled lava, and the originating temperatures and pressures in that lava tube uh, make their structures unique. And so this basalt most likely formed at the end of the initial ring of fire eruption event and has gone undetected because, well, it was pretty well hidden uh, five miles down. <laughs> and so, yeah, now, the Ring of Fire isn't actually ancient in terms of Earth's geological history, but some of the volcanic rock dates back billions of years. The team used the Joides Resolution Drilling Rig, which is actually capable of drilling to six miles below the surface of the Earth and bringing back samples. So this was no problem at all for it, apparently. 
And so the samples came from the Amami Senkaku Basin, which is 600 miles off the coast of Japan. And so when looking at the basalt under a microscope, it could actually pretty much be mistaken for a piece of modern art. Um, it features shards of slate gray and sea greens with touches of blue and tan. And it's actually quite interesting. Um, and so being able to know more about the conditions that formed this basalt will help researchers better understand the larger ring of fire. In an era when we rightly admire discoveries made through space exploration, our findings show there are still many discoveries still to make on our own planet, Savov said. And speaking of that, and going even deeper into the Earth, researchers believe that they have found a layer of the Earth that was previously undetected. New research suggests that the Earth has an inner, inner core. The layer may have to do with changes to the structure of iron under extreme temperatures and pressure. It's not just a solid ball of iron, notes Joe Stevenson, a doctoral student in seismology at Australian National University in Canberra, who led the research. Since the 1980s, researchers have suspected that there's something funny going on with the core. Since we can't directly observe the interior of the Earth, where temperatures in the core can reach almost that of the sun, we rely on earthquakes to act as a sort of X-ray imaging. When a tremor pulses through the Earth, it is disrupted in measurable ways by the interior structures of the Earth. It's been known for quite some time that waves pass through the core more quickly from north to south than those traveling parallel to the Earth's equator. No one knows quite why, but they do have a name for it. Anisotrophy. By the 2000s, researchers had noticed that at the very center of the inner core, the, anisot the anisotrophy did not match the rest of the inner core. For the last two decades, it has been very, very unclear what this signal is in the center of the Earth in the data is and why we see it, Stevenson said. So Stevenson and her colleagues analyzed a data set of around 100,000 earthquake waves that had passed through the anomaly and used an algorithm to search for the best physical explanation for the trend found in the data. They found that in the inner inner core, starting at around 400 miles from the dead center of the Earth, the anisotrophy is the, in the slow direction is tilted 54 degrees from the equator. This isn't just noise in the data. This is really something that's there, Stevenson said. But again, having the data is great, but it doesn't answer the question of what exactly the anomaly is. It could have something to do with the way iron crystallizes as it cools, or it could be due to the way the metal reacts under great pressures and temperatures. Part of the problem is that images, the images that we are getting are, well, they're kind of fuzzy. <laughs> the kinds of deep earthquakes required to visualize the Earth's core don't occur uniformly over the entirety of the Earth. This leads to blind spots in the picture. 
but researchers are hoping to harness the subtle earthquakes called exotic phases to better fill in the picture. These are usually too weak for a single earthquake to make an impact, but can shine in large datasets of thousands of earthquakes. It's important for us to know about how the inner core of our planet works because the electrical field it produces shields the Earth from charged particles coming from the Sun. It's one of the reasons why Mars would be so hard to populate. Mars's electrical field stopped billions of years ago, and so it doesn't have that protective layer of a magnetosphere that keeps out those uh, solar wind particles. And so all of that is ionizing radiation, and so it's the kind of radiation that actually hurts you. Now, speaking of Mars, let's turn now to Ingenuity, the helicopter now on the surface of Mars. The maiden flight of the copper copter should be early next month. Now, the craft is equipped with two stacked 2400 RPM motors, rotors, excuse me, solar-powered lithium batteries, and four carbon composite legs. The team in charge of Ingenuity have mapped out an oblong 300-foot zone right near its pal Percy in order to test out its capabilities. The plan is to deploy the craft from its perch on Percy's power supply, and once it's deployed, to execute a series of 20 to 30 second hovers. Now, this may not seem all that impressive, but remember, this will be the first aircraft to fly on another planet, notwithstanding the orbiters, which don't really count because they're above the planet's atmosphere and they're using gravity. They're not actually being powered through the atmosphere itself. Um, and so the data collected from these flights will most likely help inform the design of the future Dragonfly, uh, which is set to explore the moon Titan, which is very exciting. Um, and so once ingenuity, ingenuity separates, Percy will quickly get out of its way, as the helicopter only has enough power to last one Martian night without recharging. Uh, and so it is pop. It is important to be able to access the sun that first morning. Perseverance will then head over to the newly dubbed Van Zyl Overlook, around 200 feet from the drop site. The overlook is only around three feet higher than the flight zone, but still enough to give Percy a good view. The first possible flight would take place on April 8th, according to Bob Ballaram, chief engineer for the aircraft. The copter, which uses off-the-shelf components, which will help it navigate and send info back to Percy, spots some impressive computational power. The particular computer we're using here on Ingenuity is about 150 times faster than the one on Perseverance, Ballaram said in a NASA press conference recently. If you add up all the computers all the way back that have flown out into the solar system and you sum it all up, we dwarf it by two orders of magnitude. And that sounds pretty impressive, and obviously it is, but that still doesn't mean 
that it's going to do a lot of things right now because, again, this is a proof of concept. And so the plan is to do up to five brief hovers to see what can be done to make sure that it's working and then to call it quits. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it actually will not do anything else. Um, We've had mission extensions time and time again um, for uh, these kinds of rovers and landers. And so, um, you know, it they might do something else, but they're not going to uh, put the cart before the horse by announcing anything until they know it can actually fly. And in true NASA fashion, the craft has its own bit of swag, a piece of fabric around the size of a postage stamp underneath the helicopter's solar panel. The fabric is cloth cut from one of the Wright Brothers' first powered controlled flight aircrafts. The brothers auctioned off sheaves of the fabric in order to raise funds for future flight attempts, and the owner of one of those fragments donated it to NASA so that it could go on Ingenuity, which is very, very cool. Um, and I am just so excited about the prospect of getting to see how Ingenuity is going to work. And, um, you know, again, I keep talking about how NASA has been uh, hitting it out of the ballpark. So hopefully this will be another home run for them. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. Hey, this is Morlock, and if you want to hear some of the best in BGM and Nerdcore, I got you covered. On Press Start to Continue, you can hear an eclectic two-hour mix of geek music. We've got covers of classic game themes in any number of genres, theme shows, interviews, and so much more. Visit starttocontinue.com to learn more, or just search for Press Start to Continue DLC on your favorite podcast app. Press Start to Continue, nerdy music for the masses. Press start to continue. A member of the Planetside Podcast Network.